0: Well, good morning. Uh, before we jump into what we're going to talk about here today, wipe off my table, uh, I'd like to do something uh, a little bit out of the, out of the ordinary. Uh, if you are a teacher or an educator, or in some way you're going to be making school happen this year, would you stand right where you are? Could you do that for us? Teachers, educators, right here, all the best people right here standing up. Here's, yeah. No, no, keep standing. Stay, stay standing. Here's, here's what I'd like to do, all right? Um, I would like us to give uh, all of these fantastic people a, a shot in the arm, a blessing as they go. We're going to pray for them, and uh, to bless them, we got a new car for everyone in the parking lot. That's a teacher. <laughs> I wish. Sorry. Sorry. It's uh, not true, uh, but we are going to reach out. Here's what we're going to do. It's not weird. It's just a hand of support. If you're close to a teacher, would you just reach out, put your hand on the shoulder, uh, specifically the shoulder, and, and uh, if you're near someone, you touch their hand, and we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray a blessing on them as they go into their school year, and uh, thank God for their life and their influence in our kids' lives. Okay, so would you do that with me right now? Thank you, God, for all of these people that you've called to, to love and care for our kids. And thank you for the, uh, the passion and the energy and the care with which they do what you've called them to do. And so, Lord, I pray uh, again this year as they enter into the classroom that you would renew their vision and their passion to educate our kids, to love them, to equip them, to empower them to live a better life. And so thank you for them. I pray for patience for them. I pray for uh, long-suffering for them, for love for them, for compassion for them, for all of the things they're going to encounter this year in their classroom. And we say thank you for them, and we bless them in your name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you so much. Let's just thank them out loud. Yep. I think... That we should pay teachers what we pay professional athletes, and we should pay professional athletes what we pay teachers, right? Yep. So, if you're in charge of that, if you could fix that, that'd be great. <laughs> well, before we jump into what we're going to talk about, I just want to take a, a personal moment and tell you thank you. A lot of you have uh, reached out to me this week. I was I was in Dallas this week with my dad. My dad has Alzheimer's, and uh, is about two years in, and we had to take care of a whole bunch of just uh, stuff you got to take care of when when your parent gets in that stage in life. And uh, it wasn't a very fun week. It was a very sad week. And I really appreciate the number of you who've reached out and just said that you're praying for me. Uh, it, it just means, it means the world to me. Um, it, you know, right, that when you say you're praying for someone, you're not saying, hey, I'm praying for you, that all this bad stuff would go away. I mean, I wish it would. I wish there was no such thing as Alzheimer's. I don't understand why that happens in the world. Uh, but when you, when you say that you're praying for someone, what you're doing is you're asking God to hold them up. And um, the Apostle Paul, he he wrote and he said, hey, listen, um, when we pray, we often don't know what to pray, which gives me great comfort because I'm like, I don't know what to pray. Um, I have a list of prayer requests that I work my way through every every morning, um, but we often don't know what to pray. And so often when I'm praying for someone to be healed, I just say, God, you know, heal whatever needs to be healed. Because sometimes a physical thing is a manifestation of an emotional thing. And what the person really needs is the healing of their emotions and then that would work itself out in the physical. And I don't know all that. I'm not smart enough or wise enough to see what a person needs. I just know they need healing and so uh, I pray for that. Um, I'm, I'm gonna have a lot of questions for God when I get to heaven. Like I don't understand Alzheimer's because uh, Alzheimer's is you lose the person before you lose the person. Those of you who have been through that, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I just know that my trust in God is greater than my understanding of life's complexities. And that, in essence, honestly, that's the essence of faith. Faith is personal trust that God knows best. And my confidence and trust is in God. So I just really appreciate you praying for me. That means, means the world to me. And um, so I'm going to invite you to stand now, if you would. We're going to read the passage of Scripture as we do, as our practice, out of honor for God's Word. And I'm going to read it aloud. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, uh, and we're in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. We've made our way through most of the book, and now we're coming back and reading the letters that were written to individual churches. And this will be on the screen, and you can follow along. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then this line gets inserted in every one of the letters that Jesus writes to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for standing. Um, If you're keeping track at home, you've probably noticed that last week we looked at the very first letter in this series of letters in the book of Revelation that uh, John records for us and uh, if you're keeping track of home, you're like, wait, hey, wait, you're skipping over the second one. What's the deal with that? Well, uh, the reason is, is every letter starts out the same. There's commendations, and then there's critiques. Like, these things are going great. Way to go. And these things you need to work on, because this, every church is imperfect. Um, but the, the church at Smyrna, the second letter, uh, is actually one of the only letters that's written, and there's no critique. And this is a church that's persecuted. Now, we as Americans, we really don't know what that means to put our life on our line for our faith but there are plenty of christians around the world today who do and so next sunday we have pastor hernan osario who was a pastor in south america pastor of a very large congregation and literally had to flee for his life because of his faith and he's going to be here next sunday and tell his story you do not want to miss it okay please be here. You do not want to miss that story. Um, so we're jumping ahead today, and we're looking at this letter that, the Apollo, that John um, uh, transcribed for us from Jesus to the church to this ancient city of Pergamum in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, and we're going to talk about what this passage, this letter talks about, um, and it's the issue of how we make decisions with our bodies, specifically with Our sexuality. Now, um, I've I've rated this message PG-13, so if you have someone who's under 13 or has the mindset of someone under 13, so no women elbow their husbands, that's you. Um, You have a chance to take them out if you don't want them to be here, but I mean it in the the, the best sense of the word uh, that PG stands for parental guidance. I want to give you some parental guidance uh, around the issue of sexuality, and I want to talk to you as a dad. I have kids Uh, about my hope for the next generation. So if you want to take them to kids' ministry, including your husband who thinks like a 13-year-old, you can. That'll be weird, but whatever. Um, We're going to be honest, not graphic, okay? So hang with me on that. Uh, Before we get into that, let me make sure if you're just joining us and you're going, what in the world are you talking about? I came on a Sunday, we're talking about sex, what in the heck? Um, I I just want to give you the lay of the land. This is a series, we're reading these letters, and uh, these are letters to local churches. Um, and, And these letters are being written, and the message of the New Testament is a message for people who are followers of Jesus. And specifically, and this is really important that you hear this, uh, the moral message of the New Testament is directed at Christians, not at non-Christians. So the Bible is never meant to be used as a club to hit someone over the head who does not believe and say, you ought to behave this way, because it was not written to them. Now you say, well, wait a second. That's not right. Yes, it is. Let me show you what the Apostle Paul himself said in one of his letters. He said this. He said, what business is it of mine to judge those, what's the word, outside the church? In other words, it's not my business. We're following Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. If you don't want to follow Jesus, you don't have to. It's not my business. That's God's business. Then he says this. Are you not to judge those inside The church. So, in other words, the the moral message—how we, uh, when I say moral, what I mean is something that's good and best and promotes human flourishing. The message of the New Testament about what's moral, specifically as it relates relates to how we use our body in a sexual way, um, is for the people of Jesus. Now, the church is uh, is simply the people of Jesus who are learning to live out Jesus' values. And so, what the people who follow Jesus—they're saying, "Listen, I'm willing to lay down my values." And I'm willing to learn Jesus' values and begin to live them out. And the church is just the people who are trying to figure that out. Now, any church is imperfect. If you were looking for the perfect church, I have some bad news for you. It became imperfect the moment you walked through the door. So thanks for messing it up, right? (laughs) It's imperfect. Every church is imperfect because there are people. Um, But as as followers of Jesus, we're working to live out the values of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that. I promise you this is going to be uncomfortable. It got really quiet in the first service. I mean, really quiet. Uh, But we're going to talk honestly about this, okay? Um, So here we are at this letter that John uh, transcribes from Jesus to the church, to the church at Pergamum. And uh, I'm just going to lay out some of these things, because you probably heard this, or you have it open, and you're going, what in the world is he talking about right here in this letter? I don't understand it. And I'm just going to explain it to you, and then I'm going to spend the majority of the the rest of the time talking about how we're to treat our bodies as Christians in a a sexual kind of way. Um, And this way he says, in verse 12, he says, these are the words of him who has a sword, a sharp-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In other words, that's a metaphor, meaning this is a word of judgment for this local church. And he says, um, I, he says some the positive things, he says, listen, I, I know where you live, uh, you live where Satan has his throne. Now, I was uh, gone all week and didn't have time to get everything ready like I normally do, and if I had the time, I would have a picture for you of uh, what has been reconstructed from, you could go to ancient Pergamum and look at the archaeological ruins and see what they, what they called, uh, most scholars say, was the, the, a temple, an, an altar to the god Zeus, and they've reconstructed it in a museum in Berlin. It's really an amazing piece of architecture. Uh, but most scholars say that's what he's referring to, is, is Zeus was worshipped there. Or if it wasn't that, that was one of the centers where you would worship the emperor. And that day, the emperor was seen as a god. And so you were, if you were a patriot, if you were a true patriot, you gave your, um, you gave your loyalty to the emperor and said, yes, he's a god. He worship him. And he says, this is, in essence, this is the heart of Satan's territory. And you, church at Pergamum, you remained faithful in the middle of that. In fact, you remained faithful when my faithful witness Antipas was killed for his faith. Now, uh, most scholars don't know exactly how Antipas died. They think he was the the bishop of the church, the leader of the church in Pergamum. Um, But many scholars think that he was tortured. And uh, one of the ways they did this, and some scholars say this is how it happened, is they created a, a gigantic metal hollow bowl. And they had a hole in it that they would put the person in. And then they would heat a fire up underneath this metal bowl until the person burned alive. And they had holes uh, where the bull's mouth would be. And the, the screams and the cries and the moans of the person being burned alive would sound like a bull. And many people think, many scholars think, that's how Antipas died. And, and Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, you lived through that. And you didn't give up. Well done. Now, then he goes on, though, and he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Some of you are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And then he goes a little further, and he says, And some of you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you are sitting there saying, Oh, of course, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I know exactly what he's talking about we'd have no clue what he's talking about, do we? What in the world does he mean? Well, you have to dig back into the Old Testament to understand some of what he's talking about. He's referencing the, the prophet Balaam in the Old Testament. You could go all the way back to the book of Numbers. The first five books of the Old Testament are known as the Pentateuch, written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Numbers is the, the historical record of the Jewish people. And there you have, in Numbers 22, the story of Balaam, who was a basically a holy hitman who would hire himself out to the highest bidder to to, to give a blessing or a curse and the Israelite people were coming out of Egypt and they were coming to the land of Moab and the king of Moab was Balak and Balak didn't like that all these people were coming into his land and so he hired Balaam and said I want you to put a hit on these people these Israel I know you're one of them but you're for hire you're a sellout so I want you to put a hit on them uh, so that these people will not invade my land. So there's a whole story. You can read it in Numbers 22, a talking donkey and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, but, but in essence, uh, John says that what Balaam did uh, in the process of doing that is he went back to the Israelites and he said, listen, 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 guys, listen, listen, listen. You're coming out of Egypt. I get it. We were slaves. I get it. But we're coming into this guy's land. And, and we got to make some compromises in how we act and how we live. And we got to go along with the way they do things. I mean, you got to go along to get along, guys. Come on. And so what John says is that Balaam led them astray so that they ate food sacrificed to idols. In other words, they were actively participating in idolatry one, against one of the Ten Commandments. And he says they were, he was actively teaching them to go and commit sexual immorality. In other words, it was a very free-flowing uh, sexual environment in that day. I'll give it to you in a phrase. Uh, they would do whatever with whoever. And then he goes on and he says, and some of you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, most people think the Nicolaitans was from a guy named Nicholas. Most of the scholars think this is Nicholas, and Nicholas was uh, a Gnostic philosopher. Maybe you've heard of that. Gnosticism is the belief that um, we have a spirit and we have a body And our body doesn't matter. What we do with our body doesn't matter. How we treat our body doesn't matter. We can do terrible things to our body or great things to our body. It doesn't matter. What matters is our spirit because we want our spirit to leave this world and go to another place. Now, maybe you've heard Christianity defined in those terms. That's not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. But the end result of that teaching was that you can do whatever with whoever. Now, it's not a stretch for you to see this, right, that in our day, our culture is under the teaching of what John would call the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaians, because we say, hey, you can do whatever with whoever, and then we add a line to it and say, and frankly, it's none of your business what I do with that person, right? Now, you have to contrast uh, that teaching Um, with the teaching of the Bible about your body. Now, I'm going to say some super unpopular things to you, okay? You you may not agree with me. I'm not telling you you have to agree with me. I'm just going to tell you some unpopular things, and frankly, uh, what I'm going to teach you is what the Christian church has believed for 2,000 years. There's no change in this view for 2,000 years. Uh, Only in the last 50 to 60 years has this issue become an issue in our culture. I mean, most cultures around the world, it's not. Um, and, and the church has said, well, maybe we think this, and maybe we think that, and maybe we, maybe we need to change our position. It's, it's been the same for 2,000 years, so I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not making something up. I'm not coming up with something. I just decided sounded good. I'm just going to tell you. It's unpopular, though, but you need to know first, because this forms the foundation for the Christian view of how we treat our bodies and how we act sexually, what's moral, what's best, what promotes human flourishing, is how you understand your body. Now, if you were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and the, the creation account when God creates everything, and if you go to day 6 and you were to read how God creates man and woman in his image, and he says, here's the beasts of the field, and, and I want you to rule over them, and then he says, and be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply is a biblical word for be sexually active, okay? Does it, are, we, are we adults now? Can we talk about that, right? Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Uh, and then he goes on, he says, now nah, i give you all these plants and all these animals to eat. A- and then, very important that you get this, okay? He says, in the end of this day six, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Say it with me. Very good, okay? Now, if you know the creation story, all the other days, when God creates something and there was light and there was dark, it says, and it was good. When your body was created, God says not that it was just good, that it was very good. God looks at your body and thinks that it is very good. God thinks you have a great body. That's what, that's what he's saying right here. Uh, then the psalmist picks up on this in Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. And he says, listen, that you, you and I were knit together in our mother's womb. Any of you have a grandma or an aunt that knits and crochets? you know, and they take those needles and they make those intricate patterns and like it's becoming a, a, like a, a cool hip thing for women to do again, I guess. I, don't, I guess men can do it. Sorry, am I being sexist? I don't, I don't know. Uh, but you know, they knit these intricate patterns together and those needles fly and they, it's, that's the picture of how God knit you together, knit your body together in your mother's womb. And the psalmist says, and you were, so you were fearfully and wonderfully made. When God thinks about your body, it's like it's fearfully and wonderfully made. Then the Apostle Paul picks up on this in the New Testament, in the letter he writes to the Christians in Corinth uh, that we have in the, in the New Testament, and, and he's talking to them about how they're to use their bodies sexually, and, he says, and he's talking to them about some of them are visiting prostitutes. He's like, that's not what your body was made for because it was made good and fearfully and wonderfully made, and, and when you unite with someone like that, you're doing something that doesn't work, and it's not good, and it's not healthy, and, and he says this. He says, you were bought with a price. The price, he's pointing out, is Jesus' body. On the cross. Therefore, honor God with, what's the words? Your body. Say it again. Your body. He doesn't say honor God with your mind, though he means that. He doesn't say honor God with your thoughts. He doesn't say honor God with your hearts. He says honor God with your what? With your body, right? And then even when Jesus is resurrected from the dead in a physical body, the Apostle Paul says, this is what's going to happen for us. He says, uh, Jesus will transform your lowly bodies so that you will be like his glorious body. From beginning to end in the scriptures, your body is a very, very good thing. And you've got to understand this because this forms the Christian view, the foundation for the Christian view of sexuality. Your body to God is not bad it's good. So you're to treat it good. It's like, uh, some of you know, um, some of you that work at the mill, you know, uh, a lot of guys that work in the mill, some women I guess too, have what they call a mill car. And so they don't want to take uh, their $65,000 truck with, um, that they've put all kinds of toys on to the mill and let all the ash fall on it and ruin the paint job and rust it out. So they buy like a hoopty for a few hundred bucks or maybe a thousand bucks and they park it outside and they drive the mill car in because the mill car is a piece of junk and they don't mind that getting stuff on it and they drive back out and they take care of their truck that costs them $65,000 or $70,000. Here's the point of the Bible. Your body is not a mill car. It's a truck that you're supposed to take care of and like... Wax! I guess that means you get pedicures. I don't don't know what that means, but you're supposed to take care of it, right? It's something that God thinks is good. And so He wants you to treat it really, really well. Um, So I wanna I wanna spend the rest of the time just explaining uh, to you the the Bible's view of how we're to treat our bodies with regard to our sexuality. And, And I need to, before I tell you that, I need to give you a few caveats, Uh, just some things that you you need to have in your brain. Um, This is the first one, is I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for choices that you've already made. That is not the point here. The the point here is that we could talk about how we could instill a different set of values in the next generation and make their life better than ours. Um, I I I need you to know That Christianity isn't... This is the second thing. Christianity is not a message for perfect people that they then shout at imperfect people. Christianity is a message for broken people. Anybody else broken but me in here? Yeah. So this is for all of us. And then I need you to know, third caveat caveat is that the the message of the Bible from beginning to end is that sex is a gift. That that, uh, the Bible is very positive about sexuality. I think even today... I could get you to blush if I were to read aloud the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Now, don't Google that right now. Uh, go home and read it this afternoon. And when you read it and you say, is he talking about what I think he's talking about? He is talking about what you think he's talking about right there. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, but the Bible is very, very clear that the, the sexuality is a gift, that it's beautiful. Th- think about it. I'm going to use very careful language here because you might have kids and you don't want them to hear certain words. But the act itself of how a human life is created, the joy and elation of that act, says something to you about how God sees sexuality. Are you tracking with me? And then this is the fourth thing, and again, I'm talking to you if you're, if you're not a person of faith. I am not trying to tell you what you ought to do. I, I am talking to Christians, and I'm calling you to a higher standard But I'm just asking you if you say, well, I don't don't agree with this and I don't like this. I'm just asking you to have an open mind and consider that that a 2,000-year-long understanding of human sexuality might have something to offer us today because I think we can agree that we're kind of messed up on sexuality in our culture today. We're very confused about what works and what doesn't and what's good and what doesn't. I'll give you an example from our laws. On the one hand, we say that what an adult person does in a sexual way with a child's body is morally and legally wrong, rightfully so. Detestable. Horrific. Painful. At the same time, we are no different than those Christians in Pergamum who got the idea that you could do whatever with whoever and it's none of your business. If you apply that ethic all the way across the board, then who's to say that it's bad for an adult to do something with a child? Who are you to say? Unless you have a reason for saying that. It, we're, we're, we're incredibly confused about that. And then by the same token, you might say, well, you know what? The Bible is, uh, you're, you're trying to tell me that the Bible has one ethic for uh, you know, how sexualized to be expressed. And I've read the Old Testament and there's polygamy in the Old Testament. See, that says, that the Bible says that polygamy is okay. No. That is a misunderstanding of how to apply the text. I'm telling you this from decades myself of studying the Bible. I have two degrees in studying uh, the scriptures and, and correctly interpreting them. Um, the Bible is a story and not a cookbook, okay? If it was a cookbook, then you'd go, well, polygamy's in there, that's a bad ingredient. And if, if it's a cookbook, well, put, God put polygamy in there, so we're going to include that ingredient. No, no, no. It's a story. And the story includes the good and the bad. And so when you read about that in the book of Genesis, you're also meant to read the subtext. And the subtext of the story of polygamy, in the Old, that's specifically in the Old Testament, is that every time there is polygamy, there is horrific things that happen in human relationships. Jealousy, bitterness, hatred, murder. It's just ugly. You're supposed to read that. Um. So, if you want to, uh, you want to debate with me after the service, come down. We will throw the gloves off. We will go at it. Right? Okay. Right, right. So, um, I, I I need you to understand um, all of all of those things. I'm I'm really giving this message for the next generation. This is this is for them. This is for them. I'm I'm kind of shocked at the number of even Christian parents who they're. Um, their advice to their children amounts to really not a lot more than hey, just be careful. Huh? <laughs> I, I think I understand why some parents say that they don't want to be hypocrites because that, they didn't make the right decisions and so they, they're, or they're scared to talk about the decisions that they made and so they just want to put that out there and not deal with the issue. I, I, under, I can understand that. I can appreciate the desire to not be hypocritical, but I want to give you a different way to think about that because if your child um, were to reach up and to touch the stove and burn themselves, you wouldn't say to them, hey, when you're in the kitchen, just be careful. What do you mean, Mom? I, I mean, when you go in there, let's just you know, just be careful. You would say, now there are some sharp knives. If you pick them up and touch them, they will slice you. There's a hot thing called a stove that will burn and scald your skin. The reason I know is because I did it. Let me tell you about that. So some of us as Christian parents have to swallow a humility pill and say, okay, I didn't make the right choices, but I want to provide for my kids a better way. And so I'm going to be honest as as appropriate for their age about the decisions that I made and how I hope for them something better. Because the, the, the Bible's picture moves from, uh, about sexuality and how it's expressed, it moves from um, whatever with whoever to it's wonderful with one. Because, and I'll just be playing with you, again, very unpopular. The Bible's picture of sexual expression is a man and a woman in a covenant marriage relationship that is a lifetime long relationship. And so it's from whatever with whoever to it's wonderful with one. And you need to understand something. The ultimate relationship, our culture has made sex an idol. And so we think the ultimate thing is sexual expression. It is not. Jesus was single. The apostle Paul was single. And he said, listen, it's better. You can serve God more if you're not married because you don't have your wife telling you you need to be home at six (laughs) o'clock. The ultimate relationship is unbarriered intimate relationship with God not sexual expression see we made it an idol so if I don't express my sexuality something's wrong with me no the, the pattern is for sex in the Bible is it's, it's meant to be wonderful with one and if you were to adopt that it would save you from some things and it would put some things into you and I want to just spend the rest of the time telling you those lists okay so what are the things that if you adopt the Bible's ethic about sexuality, sexual expression, what are the things that it saves you from? Here's the first thing. Saves you from comparison and insecurity. So you never, if this is the choice you make and you say, I'm going to keep myself for my spouse till I marry them, then you never have to wonder if they liked someone more than you. And you can marry, if you marry someone who saves themselves and, then, and they save themselves and you save yourself, guess what? You get to do all your learning together. And it's beautiful. Uh, you might say, well, but no, I mean, wait, 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 wait. I mean, you've got to try out the merchandise, man. I mean, you've got to know if, this work, if everything works together. Listen, listen. God is a beautiful designer. It all fits. <laughs> and someone who says, so I've got to try that out, they're really just trying to get their own pleasure met. If they love you, they'll say, okay, I want what's best for you. Comparison and insecurity. Second thing is disease. If, if there is an act that you did that could, by things you uh, do, could kill you with a disease you get, deform you, and or make you sterile, don't you think that might be nature's way of saying, hang on here, danger, Will Robinson, be careful, right? And if you choose and they choose, guess what, you never have to worry about, ever, a disease that will kill you, deform you, or make you sterile. Uh, third thing is jealousy. I, I, want, I want to tell you about, uh, about the most sexual part of yourself, the most intimate and the most important sexual part of yourself. Do you know what it is? Your mind. Fooled you, didn't I? There is nothing that you can wear that protects your memories, your feelings, and your thoughts. Nothing. There is no protection against those things. And you bring those things into a sexual relationship. And you can't wear a prophylactic that prevents something from... So I, I just think our, our talk about safe sex is ridiculous because there is no such thing. There's. We. It's not just body parts. You're bringing all of you into that connection and when you bring all of you into that connection you can't protect you can protect the body part but you can't connect the real part of you you can have there can be such a thing as safe sandwich eating right you can get a sandwich you can open it up make sure there's no spider like what are you talking about in the seventh grade i sat down at lunch at school i opened up the sandwich to put on the mayonnaise and a spider walked off just be careful when you eat sandwiches right you can open the bread and go there's no nails oh it's safe sandwich eating you can do you can eat safe sandwiches right there is no such thing as safe sex because you can't protect your emotions. can't wear something that's going to keep that from happening. Fourth thing is a financial struggle. Now listen, this is, this is tough, okay? I'm just telling you the statistics. You can look this up for yourself. If you want to guarantee that you will live below the poverty line, the way that you do it according to statisticians, is you get pregnant while you were in high school, don't get married, don't finish school, and raise that child by yourself. You are almost guaranteed to live at the poverty level. Now listen, I'm not telling you that's a sentence if that's your story. I know that's the story of a lot of people in here, and I know some stories of people who made it pass. I'm saying you can I'm just telling you the stats. Um, fourth thing is this, is hypocrisy. Now listen, let me just talk to guys, because I'm a guy. And I don't always like to be a woman, so I just... What, what we want as guys is... Um, We want to date the girl who will do whatever with whoever, and then we want to go marry the virgin queen who saved herself for us. That is total and complete hypocrisy and a complete and total double standard. And if you say, well, I'm going to choose a different ethic, and I'm not going to go that way, you go from being a double standard to being the gold standard. So those are some things that that ethic saves you from, the Bible's ethic. Now, what do you get when you choose this? What are the positive things you get? Well, um, some things it saves you for. for trust, right? If, if you choose and your partner chooses, and we're going to be celibate until we get married, guess what happens? You say to yourself, you know what? They were faithful to me before. They'll be faithful to me after. Guess what happens to your Trust. I, um, this was the path my wife and I chose, and uh, I, I, I'm telling you, you can ask my wife, neither of us had, not that we've had a perfect marriage, but n- neither of us have ever had a moment where we have doubted the faithfulness of our partner. Not once. Why? Because we chose this path. Second thing, Peace. Uh, You know how if you went to your house and you found out that your house was haunted, um, you would have a hard time sleeping tonight probably (laughs) because the ghosts of the past would be in the present moment. And when you have the ghosts of the past always there, it is very hard for you to come to a place of peace because the ghosts tend to appear. And when you've chosen the path that is laid out in the Scriptures that is moral and good and it creates human flourishing, you know, one of the beautiful things that comes along with that is a beautiful sense of peace. Uh, Third thing is the next generation, because you're passing on trust and peace to the next generation. Um, You're you're passing on something that will outlast you. Now, on on your wedding day, it's standard to give a gift, but I, I just have a question about that. What can you possibly give on your wedding day that's tangible that the person will always hold on to and it will never tarnish? I mean, a toaster? Is that... (laughs) A car? A watch? I, I don't know. I mean, those are all fine if you want to give those things. You know what is intended to be the gift that you give to the other person? Is that you saved yourself for them. Now you say, well, that's unrealistic. Nobody does that today. I did it wasn't easy so did my wife and I don't regret it for a second fourth thing is that you become a person of influence when your spouse trusts you you trust them there's peace you pass on something to the next generation you're able to actually influence each other one of the reasons you have issues in your relationship is because there's all this stuff in the past and it's hard to get past all that stuff in the past because this, this, is, this is the Bible's picture is that you would go from an ethic where you would say, it's whatever with whoever and it's none of your business to it's wonderful with one. Now, here's what I know. Some of you are sitting there um, like in the first service. It's about that quiet. And you say, well, that was not my path. So I, I guess I'm ruined, right? There's a beautiful thing at the end of this letter where Jesus says to the church, hey, the one that overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name. Known only to the one who receives it. Here's, here's a scholar's debate what that, they think that means, but here's what I think that means, okay? Uh, this is a, basically a white stone and with the way most of it represents our body. And the way most of us practice our sexuality, it just, it gets, just gets covered in dirt. And, and we identify with the dirt more than we identify with what we were created to be, and we just think we can't ever get rid of that. The wonderful and beautiful thing about the good news of Jesus is that the dirt can be washed off. So when we have baptism Sunday and we dip people in the water, we are symbolically saying that what Jesus does in a human person He washes off the dirt. And where before, they they had other names that were written on the stone, right? What are the other names that are written on the stone? Cheater, abused, trash, easy, player. And instead, I'm, I'm positive this is the meaning of this. You get a new name that God... Washes you clean, and he washes off the dirt, and he says, "Now let's start over from here." So maybe you're uh, you're living with somebody, and you want to get married to them, and you would say, "Okay, I'm gonna, from here on out, we're gonna we're gonna abstain." I promise you, when you get to your wedding night, it's gonna be fantastic. <laughs> because when you're when you're when you're when you're doing that act before you're married and then you get married like what's the difference what's special about that but you get to start over and and you get to then maybe you didn't do this right okay alright but you get to pass on something different to the next generation I, I get that you got burned but God can heal the burn and you can tell the next generation don't get burned like I got burned So here's what I'm going to ask you to do when we're done, and then no one's going to really pay attention to you. Right down here is a bucket, and it's got water in it, and it's filled with white stones. And if you say, I am ready to do this differently, I am ready to accept that this is Jesus' value for how I treat my body, it's going to be hard, I'm going to need help, but I'm committed to doing this, then before you leave, uh, it won't be a public thing, you can just come down here, reach into the water, and take one of the white stones, And say, God, I I claim what you have offered to me, a white stone with a new name. So I want to pray for us. I want to invite you to stand with me if you would, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you that you love us, that you're never overwhelmed by how broken we are, that you see the decisions that we've made And uh, God, we we hear something like this today and uh, many of us could walk out of here kicking ourselves and saying, why didn't I, why come I'm so, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you can redeem somebody's past and start them over. Thank you that, that we can invest in the next generation and give them a different path to walk down. Thank you that we get to be a part of that. And that you don't throw anybody away, you wash them, you clean them. You erase the old name, and you write a new name. And so God, we need to hear that new name, that new name that we're the beloved, that we're the son you've always wanted, that we're the daughter you've always wanted. We want to know, we want to hear that. We need to hear that in our hearts, because this can be so overwhelming and so full of shame. And our culture has taught us that it's just body parts, and we know better. We know in our hearts that our emotions and our feelings and our whole person is wrapped up in this. And so God, we want to go your direction. As hard as it is in the middle of a culture uh, that is full of the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, we want to go a different direction. And so we're going to need to help each other. And So give us the courage to help each other and be accountable to each other. So I ask for this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. We always send you with a blessing, and if you'd like to receive it, hold your hands out, and uh, we'll give you this blessing. You're sent now uh, to know the love of God that loves you no matter what decision you've made. (laughs) No matter what you've done with your body, can forgive and heal that and give you a new start. You're sent now to love that God, love people, and serve the world in Jesus' name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. Our prayer team's down front if you need prayer.